There's a definite tendency in our culture toward something I call expert worship. People are very willing to follow the suggestions of someone they see as a legitimate authority. And that makes a lot of sense because legitimate authorities have usually achieved their positions through superior experience or skill or wisdom or power. So most of the time, we do well to listen to and follow what an expert advises. That's true not just because we'll usually make right choices. It's also true because we get to take a shortcut to those choices. After finding out what the experts think, we don't have to think through the issues ourselves, at least not very deeply. We can save all that time and mental energy for the other decisions in our life. Look, if I want to know what kind of toothpaste to buy, I don't want to have to think all that hard about it. I don't want to have to go to the library and research the chemical components of good toothpaste. I just want to be able to flip the box over and see that the American Dental Council has certified that this brand is an effective agent against tooth decay. And that's it. Fine, the experts say this is a good toothpaste. Boom, I'll take it. In the shopping cart it goes, and I can be on my way. And this doesn't just apply to small toothpaste tube-sized decisions. It applies to important choices among complex options, like which kind of car to buy, what sort of home mortgage to get, which type of financial investments to purchase, even which doctors and hospitals to use for medical care. Very often, I find that certain decision areas are so complicated that the best and most efficient strategy is not to try to think it all out myself, but simply to follow the direction of a legitimate authority. In fact, taking an authority's suggestions can be such an automatic, mindless response that I frequently find myself deferring not to a genuine authority, but to someone who carries just the aura of authority. The trappings of authority, the titles, the cars, the clothes, are simple enough to fake that professional con artists employ them all the time. They love nothing better than to emerge elegantly dressed from a fine automobile and to introduce themselves to their prospective mark as doctor or professor or judge or commissioner someone. It's because of the smugglers of our society that we have to be on guard against the trap that authority influence can sometimes produce. Now, besides the authority influence traps that smugglers set for us, there's another authority trap to avoid that is just as damaging but more insidious because we set it for ourselves. When we find ourselves in positions of authority, in positions of leadership, we can make the mistake of thinking that we always want the people working under our direction to comply with our wishes. However, once we recognize that we're human after all, and prone to the occasional wrong decisions, misperceptions, and poor choices that anyone could make, we can see that we actually don't want our subordinates to go along with whatever we say. If they fell into the trap of reacting rather than thinking in response to our directives, the trap would surely snap shut on us too, because our errors would get put into effect without anyone being there to notice and catch them first. Even inadvertent or silly errors on our part could slip through the system, ultimately leading to our great embarrassment or worse. As an illustration of how easy it is for this sort of thing to happen to anyone, let's take an example from one aspect of our lives where authority pressures are visible and strong. Medicine. Health is an enormously important thing to us. 
So physicians who possess knowledge and influence in this vital area hold the position of respected authorities. In addition, the medical establishment has a clear power and prestige structure. The various kinds of healthcare workers understand where their jobs rate in this structure, and they understand, too, that the MDs rate at the top. No one may overrule a doctor's judgment in a case except perhaps another doctor of higher rank. As a result, a long-established tradition of automatic obedience to doctor's orders has developed among healthcare staffs. The worrisome possibility arises then that when a physician makes a clear error, no one lower in the hierarchy will think to question it, precisely because once a legitimate authority has given an order, subordinates stop thinking in the situation and start reacting. Mix this kind of mechanical response into a complex hospital environment and mistakes are inevitable. In fact, a study done by the U.S. Healthcare Financing Administration shows that for patient medication alone, the average hospital in this country has a 12% daily error rate. Think of the implications. You can do the math and see that if you are a hospital patient for more than a week, you stand a very good chance that sometime during your stay, there will be an error in the medication you are given. For a manager or a group leader in any type of organization, this kind of mindless deference is a real danger. Perhaps nowhere is this point driven home more dramatically than in the life and death consequences of something that the airline industry has labeled captainitis. It seems that accident investigators from the Federal Aviation Administration have noted that with disturbing frequency, an obvious error made by the flight captain was not corrected by the other crew members, and a deadly crash was the result. Apparently, the crew members were using the shortcut, if an authority says so, it must be true, rule, in failing to attend or respond to the captain's disastrous mistake. In fact, several years ago, one major airline company became so worried about this tendency among its crews that it conducted an experiment to examine just how widespread the problem actually was. Flight crews were called in to undergo tests of their ability to handle simulated landings and takeoffs under conditions of harsh weather and poor visibility. Now, at some point during the simulations, company officials would take the captain aside and say, during this exercise, we want you to make an obvious, visible error that, unless corrected in a minute or so, will crash the plane. And we want to see how your crew reacts. To the great dismay of the airline company officials, after the captains made those deliberate, potentially catastrophic mistakes, fully 25% of the flights would have crashed because no one in those crews took corrective steps in the face of the authority figure's action. These results are scary for those of us who travel on commercial airlines frequently, but they are also instructive about the power of authority pressures in groups of all sorts. After all, the mistakes the captain made were specifically designed to be severe and conspicuous enough that anyone in the crew would know that they would soon lead to disaster. And yet in 25% of those crews, no one said a word or lifted a finger 
to correct that error. Well, here's our puzzle of the moment then. Why didn't anybody speak up or step in to save the day? To solve the puzzle, we need only to look at the research done on group leadership styles and recognize that these were the crews dominated by an authoritarian leadership structure. In that kind of structure, the leader communicates to subordinates, either directly or indirectly, that their input is not required or desired, that their constructive criticism will be viewed as impertinence, and that any questions about the leader's directives will be seen as challenges to his or her authority. Aside from the poor morale that develops, what happens very quickly in these groups is first, subordinates stop thinking very much about whether what the boss wants is smart or dumb, because they've been told essentially that it's not their place, that they're being paid to do what the boss says, not to think about why they're doing it. The second thing that happens is that if subordinates do notice something that seems to be wrong with the boss's decision on a given matter, they're reluctant to mention it for fear that they'll be brushed off, ridiculed, or even penalized as a result. And third, there's one all too human reason why a leader's mistakes often go uncorrected. None of us is going to want to save the skin of a boss who has communicated a lack of respect for our professional intelligence. What can you do to avoid the kind of trap that characterizes the authoritarian style? First, I'd recommend against thinking that you can solve the problem by going too far in the other direction and taking a vote among the people who work under you every time there's an important decision to be made and then simply abiding by what the majority prefers. You have been charged with the responsibility of making those decisions. That's what you're getting paid for, presumably because you've given evidence of being able to make those decisions better than the people working under you. This most certainly does not mean, however, that those people should be shut out of the process. You should establish right from the start that you welcome and value their input on all matters where they may have knowledge. That, in fact, you need their knowledge in order to make the best possible decisions. And that you are human, like anyone else, and likely to make some honest mistakes that you need all the help you can get to minimize. At the same time, you have to communicate the message that, although you feel compelled to always welcome their advice, you won't feel compelled to always follow it. Now there's the delicate part. How do you make that last statement to a group of people without making it sound like you plan to disregard what they say? For me, the answer is to stress that in any decision, a number of considerations have to be taken into account. But that one thing you can promise with complete certainty is that the opinion of any person working with you will be one factor that you will put into the equation. It may not be the deciding factor, but it will be a factor. It will be given weight in your decision. I don't see how, as a good leader, you can do more than that. To simply take a poll is to abdicate your responsibilities as a leader and to bungle away the opportunity to use the insights and abilities that put you into the leadership position. But to try to do it yourself is to put yourself way up on a tightrope with no one underneath to hold the net in case you slip. So 
you need to encourage everyone with a stake in the decision process to make a contribution to it and to assure that anyone who offers a contribution will be respected in that process. That doesn't sound like much, but when it's properly accomplished, it's more than enough. In our discussion of the authority principle so far, I've tried to stress how powerful a source of influence it can be. What I haven't said yet, though, is that there is one particular type of authority who is the most powerful of all, a kind of authority who constitutes the most persuasive communicator that has ever been registered in the research of social science. Well, it's the credible authority who possesses that power. But simply understanding that fact isn't enough. To be able to use that piece of knowledge for instant influence, we have to know what it takes to be credible in the eyes of others. If we turn once again to the research findings for the answer, we can see two features, the same two features, always coming to the surface in studies done around the world. A credible authority has first, expertise, and second, trustworthiness. If either is missing, persuasiveness will drop dramatically. But if both are in place, influence will be maximal. Because both are important, let's take them one at a time. By now, it should come as no surprise that a legitimate expert, a person with relevant knowledge, can lead others towards saying yes. It has been a surprise to me, however, to see how often someone with genuine expertise in an area bungles away the chance to make an impact with it. Not long ago, I was asked by a local hospital to consult with them about a problem they were having. It seemed that many of the physical therapy patients who were recovering from accidents or strokes were not following through on the exercise programs that had been prescribed for them. When they were released from the hospital, the therapist or assistant they were working with would give them a recommended set of exercises to do at home. But when they returned to the hospital therapy lab from time to time so that their progress could be checked, it was clear that many of them had not been doing the exercises. After interviewing several of them, I thought I saw something that could be done easily to help relieve the problem. Although most people know what kind of education and training a doctor must go through, medical school, internships, residency requirements, few people know anything about the expertise that a physical therapist must have to be certified in that field. And it wasn't a doctor whose medical background was known and respected who was giving patients the instructions to do their exercises. It was a group of people whose medical credentials were unclear to the patients who were making the recommendations. Even though the therapy staff had the necessary expertise, it was being fumbled away because they hadn't been informing the patients about it properly. My suggestion was to take a hint from the doctors themselves, who consistently assure us of their qualifications by displaying on their office walls all of the diplomas and certifications that they have earned. When the therapy staff at my local hospital did the same thing, the service of one entire wall in the therapy lab where all the patients get their treatment was covered with an impressive array of awards, certifications, diplomas, and credentials. By the following week, exercise compliance had gone up 30%. We didn't fool any of the patients into complying. 
quite the reverse. We informed them into compliance. The staff's expertise was real, real and waiting, waiting for us to uncover it, to make it more visible to everyone so that it could be used to everyone's benefit. There's a lesson here for all of us. A lot of times we'll be dealing with another individual under the impression that the individual has an accurate picture of the depth of knowledge and experience that we can bring to bear on the relevant issues. But in fact, our impression may be mistaken. First of all, people can't look into a crystal ball to find out that sort of information about us. At the same time, we can't just march right in and start boasting about our knowledge and experience either. So. My advice is to always try and spend some time at the beginning of a business meeting, especially with someone you don't know well, by providing your credentials in a more indirect fashion. We can take a hint from the way that business is done outside of the U.S., in Japan, in Europe, in South America. It's customary to spend some time chatting socially before getting down to business. This provides a way for individuals to get to know one another personally. But more than that, it offers an informal opportunity to share background information that can be highly relevant to the business discussions that will follow. In the course of talking about where you grew up, went to school, where you've lived in the past, and so on, you get to describe educational experiences, prior positions, and professional connections that can reflect directly on the knowledge and savvy you bring to the business matters at hand. One nice thing about this approach is that even though the information that's passed along reflects directly on your expertise, it comes to the surface indirectly as a natural part of a sociable exchange. As a result, in getting across valuable information about your true credentials, you don't risk coming on too strong and being seen as a bald-faced self-promoter. But there's a second advantage as well. By cultivating this initial exchange of personal information, you create the means to establish your expertise very early in the game, so that when attention is turned to formal business matters, what you have to say will be listened to with more respect right from the beginning. Okay, we've covered one half of the credibility equation, expertise. Now let's consider the other half trustworthiness. Suppose you're an expert on some topic and you're trying to influence an audience to follow your suggestions on that topic. It could be an audience of customers, co-workers, even your boss. The research evidence is clear that even if the audience recognizes you as an authority, you will not be especially successful unless the audience also sees you as trustworthy. What do I mean by trustworthy? I mean that the audience has to believe that the information you are providing is unbiased, that you're not trying to serve your own interests or to line your own pockets by presenting this information, but instead that you're honestly trying to depict reality. All right, fine. Suppose that's precisely what you're trying to do, to accurately depict reality. How do you get that across to the person you're trying to convince? How do you generate this extremely valuable perception of trustworthiness? The standard answer is that you interact with the person in an honest, straightforward fashion, and over a period of time, maybe months, maybe more, the realization that you are a trustworthy individual simply develops. 
it grows slowly but surely. But what happens if you don't have that much time to make an impression of credibility? Let's say you're dealing with someone for the first time. You really know what you're talking about, and you're providing this person with the facts exactly as you see them. What can you do so that this individual sees you immediately as the credible expert you genuinely are? It turns out that there's a simple procedure for doing so that works astonishingly well when it's properly executed. Advertisers have used it for years with great success. Here's what it involves. Before you mention any of the strengths of your case, before you ever mention a reason for the audience to adopt the stance you are supporting, you mention a drawback first. You describe a weakness in your product or service or idea. Maybe you allow as how the competition has a good product too. Or that the service you provide usually takes a little time before showing results. Or that there are also some good arguments against the management project that you are advocating. In other words, you say something initially that seems to be contrary to your own interests. This establishes your basic credibility. Not only are you shown to be knowledgeable because you are aware of both sides of the issue, but you are also shown to be trustworthy because you will bring up the negatives of your position. But now, when you launch into the positives, the superior features of your product, the excellent track record of your service, the advantages of your project, people are going to listen to you differently. They're going to believe those positives to a greater extent because they come from the lips of a credible communicator, the most persuasive source of information there is. Let's take a look at some examples from the advertising world to see how this strategy has been used in some campaigns that you probably remember because they were so effective. How about this one? Avis, we're number two, but we try harder. Or this one, L'Oreal, expensive, but worth it. Or this one, the Peace Corps, the toughest job you'll ever love. In each of these appeals, a real flaw or drawback was mentioned first to establish honesty, and then was followed by product strengths. And in each of the cases, the campaign proved highly successful. Let's take one more example of how this approach works in a setting most people don't even realize is an influence setting, the restaurant. There's a person there, the waiter or waitress, who has an agenda for you, actually two agendas. One is to get you to leave a large tip at the end of the meal. The other is to get you to spend a lot on the food so that the base on which that large tip is figured is also large. And there's a very effective strategy that the most effective servers will use to achieve both of those goals. Here's what they do. Let's say that you decide to go out to a fine French restaurant for dinner with some friends, and I'll be your waiter. I approach the first person at the table, usually a lady, let's say Michelle here, and I'll ask for her order. It doesn't matter what she orders. I go into the following routine. Let's say she orders the salmon in ginger sauce. Hmm? Doesn't matter. My pen freezes above my pad. I look 
over my shoulder conspiratorially for the manager and then I lean down so everyone at the table can hear and I say don't get the salmon tonight it's not as fresh as it usually is oh we seem to have a few people who've had this happen to them and now I say don't get that and I recommend something a dollar or so less expensive from the menu wait a minute less expensive I've got you in the palm of my hand and I'm gonna I'm gonna move you to something less expensive yes because I don't want you to see me as having told you about whatever else I recommended in order to enhance my interests. I want you to see me as working on your side, acting against my own interests. I'm taking money out of my own pocket to give you the straight scoop about this restaurant this evening. Well, you know what 20% of a dollar is? It's trivial. But what I've generated by giving away that 20 cents is the perception of trustworthiness in your eyes. And when I return to the table and say, and would you like me to recommend a vintage for the table or perhaps select a, a vintage for the group? You look at me, you nod and you smile and you say, well, yes, Robert. <laughs> you know what's good here and you have our interests at heart and I smack you with an expensive bottle of wine <laughs> and the same thing happens when I return with the dreaded dessert cart and I wax rhapsodic about the glories of the chocolate mousse and the baked Alaska it's magnificent the baked Alaska is magnificent the chocolate mousse you must not leave without trying our desserts you believe me now in a way that you wouldn't have believed me before. And I make out like a bandit. And bandit is the right word. Because how did I, as Robert the waiter, bring credibility to bear on that situation? I smuggled it in. I didn't employ any real credibility there. I just made up the story about the salmon that wasn't good that night. If the first person had ordered the veal piccata or the steak Diane or the stuffed sole, I would have said the same thing. But there's no reason for me to have been a credibility smuggler. I could have been a detective of influence and gotten the same benefits while giving benefits at the same time. If I had just come in to work 15 minutes early to check with the chef and the kitchen staff to see what really was good and what wasn't good that evening, I could have then brought that information to the top of my table presentation. By doing that, I would now stand to gain honestly from the reciprocity and credibility principles because I would have done everybody a genuine favor thereby earning my larger tip, and I would have been a proper communicator of information about the stores of the house that evening, thereby earning your trust. So, 
When I came back with the dessert cart, you'd be especially willing to take my recommendations. And because I had done my homework in the kitchen earlier, I could tell you which of the desserts the chef was truly proudest of that night, and it would be win-win again. Not only would I have gained your confidence and your enhanced gratitude, along with your enhanced gratuities, you would have gotten the best meal available at my restaurant that evening. And that's the sort of thing that would make you want to come back again and maybe even ask specifically for me to be your waiter when you do. And so, as with all detectives of influence, my long-term prospects with you will be bright. Now, you might be saying, well, all that is fine and good, but I don't work in a restaurant. How does this apply to what I do? It applies because any time you have a case to make in constructing a sales presentation, in motivating a coworker to move in a desired direction, in negotiating a contract, in getting a budget approved, whatever, there are going to be pros and cons to your case. Now, I'm going to assume two things. First, that you are ethical enough and wise enough to present the cons along with the pros. And second, that aside from wanting to be ethical, you're going to want to be effective. But there's a common mistake people make in trying to be effective. They start out with the pros, figuring that they'll get their influence target leaning in their direction by hitting them first with their strongest arguments, their biggest guns. Then they'll slip in the weaknesses of their position toward the end. What's easy to forget, though, is that your big guns and strong arguments don't seem so big and strong to a target who hasn't decided whether you can be trusted yet. I'm sure you can recall when it's happened to you. You've launched into an inspired presentation of your case, raising your very best points, and these points, your best shots, are bouncing off that person you're trying to convince like there's a deflector shield between you, like there's some kind of wall between you. Well, there is. It's a wall of uncertainty. How is this person supposed to know that you are knowledgeable enough to recognize the weaknesses as well as the strengths of your case? And how is this person supposed to know that you are ethical enough to describe those weaknesses until you mention them? He can't, not without a crystal ball. So the secret to being ethical and effective is not just what you say, it's also when you say it. The key is how you sequence the information. Once again, we can see that what you do first changes the way people experience what you do later. So never bungle away the credibility you have by waiting to display it until the strongest parts of your message are passed. Our next principle of instant influence is the principle of consensus. To help you understand how this principle works, let's listen to the following conversation. Uh, what time is it, hon? Uh, let's see. Uh, just past noon. Hey, we're making great time. Good. Uh, what do you say we stop for lunch? Ooh, sounds good to me. Let's see. According to my map, there's an exit coming up that'll take us right into a town called Elmwood. Okay, Elmwood it is. Uh, here's the turnoff now. But how will we know which restaurant to eat at? Looks like hmm, there are three or four of them up ahead. Oh, simple. We'll use the old people-proof system I always use whenever I'm in a strange town. What? The people-proof system. Says uh, not to eat at this uh, first place on the left. 
uh, or the place across the street there. But here at this cafe on the right. Well, this does look like a nice little place, but what is this little secret system of yours? Oh, oh no secret. I just go to the place with the most cars in the parking lot. I, I figure if a lot of people eat in a place, that's all the proof I need. I use the same system to decide what to get from the menu. <laughs> what do you mean? You look at the parking lot to decide what to order? No, I, I go inside and ask which things the restaurant serves the most of for whatever meal I'm having there. Oh. I don't pay any attention at all to what the manager is trying to push that day or, or to what the menu says are the specialties of the house. I just find out from the waitress what's most popular, you know, day in and day out. And I usually wind up with a very good meal. Mm. It's like I said, the people are the proof. Smart. Uh -huh. Real smart. Yep. I gotta admit it, you're a pretty intelligent guy. <sighs> After all, you married me. Let's go eat. It's pretty obvious that the man in that little scene was conforming to another kind of shortcut rule to guide his behavior. He called it the people-proof rule, which is actually a good name for it, although social scientists would call it the rule of consensus. It states that, very frequently, people can accurately decide what is appropriate for them to think, feel, and do in a situation by examining what others like them are thinking, feeling, and doing there. By following the consensus, people can be quickly and efficiently right much of the time. This simple principle of behavior accounts for an amazing array of human responses. It explains why people follow the crowd, conform to the majority, and get on the bandwagon in virtually every area of their lives. It also explains a number of other mysteries of human behavior. For instance, there's the mystery of the Singapore bank panic. One morning a few years ago, for no apparent reason, customers of a certain bank in Singapore gathered in a crowd outside of its doors, and as soon as the bank opened, they started drawing out all of their money in a mad frenzy. After just a few hours, the bank was forced to shut its doors early in order to avoid being financially ruined. Afterward, no one could figure out why this run on the bank occurred. The bank was completely solvent. There were no newspaper stories the day before that even hinted that the bank was in trouble, and no false rumors were being spread by rival institutions or disgruntled investors. Nobody could understand it until one researcher started interviewing the customers who had withdrawn their funds. He found that the cause was, of all things, a wildcat bus strike. It turned out that there was a bus stop directly in front of the bank's doors where people waited every morning. Well, on this particular morning, unknown to everyone, the bus drivers decided to go on strike. So the crowd in front of the bank grew and grew until passers-by thought that there was some kind of trouble brewing at the bank and that all these people were waiting to withdraw their money. So the passers-by joined the crowd, which caused more passers-by to notice and join the crowd, which by now was buzzing with rumors about the bank's collapse. When the astonished bank officials did open the doors, it was all they could do to get out of the way to avoid being trampled by a mob of customers, some of whom were the original bus passengers, all demanding their money. Obviously, these customers were more influenced by the people-proof of the situation than by the reality of the situation. Here's another mystery for us to solve, the mystery of television laugh tracks. I've never met anybody who likes the canned laughter that accompanies all the situation comedy shows we see on TV. 
Even the actors, directors, and writers who are associated with these shows hate them. Why then is canned laughter so popular with television executives? The answer turns out to be simple. They know what the research says. Experiments have found that the use of canned merriment causes an audience to laugh longer and more often when humorous material is presented and to rate that material as funnier. In other words, people take their cue from the sound of others laughing when deciding how funny a joke is and whether they should laugh at it themselves. Please notice something about these last two examples. They each show us how following the evidence of the crowd can lead us into an influence trap. Taking into account the consensus of opinion on some issue normally makes a lot of sense. Research shows, for instance, that when faced with a problem, more heads are much better than one in coming up with the correct solution. The mistake comes not in making consensus information one factor in our decisions, it comes from making it the only factor. That can lead to trouble for two reasons. First, as we saw in the bank panic example, the consensus can sometimes be wrong. Second, as we saw in the laugh track example, the evidence of what the consensus is can sometimes be faked. And TV executives aren't the only ones who try to smuggle people-proof into situations where it doesn't naturally exist by counterfeiting the evidence. Advertisers construct phony average man-on-the-street testimonial commercials in which a bunch of actors are hired to look and sound like people being recorded by a hidden camera while singing the product's praises. Nightclub owners create long waiting lines outside their establishments to create the impression of its popularity, even though there's plenty of room inside. Bartenders salt their tip jars with large bills at the beginning of their shift. And church officials have been known to do the same thing before the collection plate is passed at services. Well, if you find individuals in church smuggling information about what others have done, you can be sure you're going to find people smuggling that information in business, too. That's why it's so important not to accept consensus uncritically. Instead, you need to evaluate it along with the other sources of information you would normally use to make a decision. The objective facts, your prior experiences, your own judgments, and so on. If the evidence you get about what everybody else is doing fits with your check of these other sources of information, then fine. Use it to help you make your choice. But if it doesn't fit, watch out. I think we've covered the influence trap aspect of people proof. Now let's talk about how this very powerful principle of behavior can be used for positive influence. The best way to do that is to describe the three conditions that increase the chance that an observer will do what others in the situation are doing. Those conditions are, first, when a lot of others are doing it, second, when the others are similar to the observer, and third, when the observer is unfamiliar with the situation. Let's take them one at a time. The more people who are performing a given activity, the more likely it is that others will join in. It's simply human nature to believe that there must be value in an activity if a lot of people are doing it. So, when we do have the people proof on our side, it would be a shame to fumble it away. As an agent of influence trying to get someone to move in your direction, 
Don't rely solely on your own powers of persuasion. Use the persuasive power that lies in the actions of others, too. If you've got the consensus of opinion on your side, make sure that you're ready and able to chart numbers, to cite statistics, and to present lists. This last practice of presenting lists of names can be especially effective because it offers your influence target personalized people proof of the wisdom of your suggestion. And it works. For example, in one study, a researcher went door to door asking for charity donations and showing homeowners a list containing the names of others in the neighborhood who had already given. When he analyzed the results, the researcher found an interesting thing. The longer the list of contributors he showed anyone, the greater was his chance of getting another contribution. What's more, the greater the average donation on the list, the larger was the average donation given by anyone who saw the list. Now, there was something else about this list study that you should take note of. The names the homeowners were influenced by weren't the names of just anybody. They were other people in the neighborhood. In other words, people just like them. This leads us to the second condition that maximizes the impact of the consensus principle. We are most influenced by the actions of people who are similar to ourselves. It makes sense, doesn't it? If we're trying to decide what is appropriate behavior for ourselves in a situation, we should pay attention to the actions of individuals there who are most like us. If you don't believe that this is the case, then try to convince someone to do what you're suggesting by providing evidence that some very different people have done so. You'll be wasting your time. We're all more affected by the actions of people who are similar to us than we are by those who are different. Suppose for a moment that your job is to sell business insurance for a company that has had good success in the field and that you're trying to convince the owners of a small video rental store, just a mom and pop operation, to consider taking out a policy. Telling them that your company insures Bloomingdale's department store in New York and the Superdome in New Orleans and the Grand Old Opry in Nashville might get them to say to themselves, wow, that's a big company. But it's not going to get them to say, hey, that must be the company for me. In trying to make an impression in describing all your company's big clients, you might be missing the crucial opportunity to tell your prospects about your company's strengths with small, similar-sized customers. It would be much better to tell them about the video store owner a few miles away who decided to buy a policy from you and your company last month. Or the guy who expanded to two video stores last year and who's insuring both with you. Better still, would be if you could show them a testimonial letter from that guy expressing his satisfaction with the policy and the service you've been giving him. I'm a great believer in using testimonial letters in sales. I mean, if you've got a lot of satisfied customers, why bungle away the instant and ethical influence that reality can produce in a new prospect? With a variety of those letters in hand, different letters that fit the circumstances of almost any new prospect, your effectiveness should jump. It's when people feel unfamiliar with a particular situation that they are in that they are most likely to want to look outside of themselves to people just like them for the evidence of what to do. 
It stands to reason. All they can see inside themselves is that uncertainty. That makes them very ready to take their lead from someone else. But not just from anyone else, because they still want to know what is appropriate for them to do. So they'll look to the closest thing, people just like them. We can apply this insight in many other areas of business. For instance, in the workplace, new employees are frequently very unsure of themselves. The anxiety they feel as a result of this uncertainty can lead to various kinds of errors and mistakes, which can lead to even more anxiety and even more mistakes. Unless a manager knows how to interrupt this negative progression, Employees can lose self-confidence and can get a view of themselves as people who do just ordinary quality work, at best, rather than excellent work on the job. One thing a manager can do to counteract this sort of thing is to provide the honest information that many new employees experience anxieties and self-doubts about their abilities, but that once they relax and feel comfortable with their job, they often become excellent performers. To show how this can work, researchers at the University of Virginia tried an experiment with freshman students who were scoring below average in their classes and who said they were extremely worried about their academic abilities. One group of these freshmen were shown statistics indicating that a lot of freshmen at the University of Virginia do poorly in their first semesters there, but they typically do much better in later semesters. The other group of freshmen were not given those statistics. The results were immediate. On the next examination the students took, those who had gotten the comforting statistics scored significantly better than those who had not. Furthermore, when the researchers tracked the progress of these two groups in later semesters, those who had gotten the statistics had significantly higher grade point averages than those whose anxieties had not been removed in this way. The same lesson can be applied to new co-workers who are uncertain and anxious about their abilities on the job. Simply giving them evidence of highly successful employees who at one time made the same mistakes and harbored the same self-doubts can be a very effective way of creating a more optimistic outlook and immediately improve performance. And that's the third condition that maximizes the power of consensus, when people are unfamiliar with the situation. On the next side of this cassette, Dr. Cialdini will explain the powerful principle of commitment and consistency, and how the drive to be and look consistent is strong enough to get us to do what we ordinarily wouldn't do. He'll also discuss the friendship and liking principle, which explains how we're much more likely to say yes to people we know and like.